This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Retail Revolution is a special limited podcast created specifically for retailing and service design. A unique course that is part of the fashion management graduate program at Parsons School of Design in New York City. Each episode features in-depth conversations with guest experts in omni-channel retailing with myriad perspectives, technology, consumer engagement, data analytics, merchandising, and more. We pay special attention to the short and long-term challenges and implications of COVID-19 and potential opportunities to rethink retail's future. Retail Revolution is produced by Joshua Williams and hosted by Christopher Lacey. Both are assistant professors in the School of Fashion at Parsons. Welcome to Retail Revolution, where we discuss all topics relating to retail and service design. Today, we are diving into consumer psychology and its impact on retail design. And with us today, we have Managing Director of Kantar Consulting, as well as best-selling author of the book, Ladies, Power Up Your Brand, Stacey Greco. Thank you so much for joining us today, Stacey. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be here. Awesome. Um, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell our listeners, you and I have known each other for woo, five, six years, maybe. Yeah, um, we, we've, we've done quite a bit of research together um, in the past and, and really into that consumer behavior psychology. And, and I think today's discussion is going to be a real treat for our listeners. So, I would love for you to tell them a bit about you and your career trajectory. Okay. Wow. Well, I guess I'll begin at the beginning. So, um, so I do uh, study and work in consumer psychology. That's consumer behavior, the, the study of um, why people buy what they buy. Um, and I started out um, back in college as a communications major studying advertising. I wanted to make ads like Don Draper. Um, and uh, in the course of studying advertising, I found myself taking a lot of psychology classes and, and really kind of um, diving into and getting really engrossed in the psychology behind people and why particular ads were, were calling out to them and why they bought certain brands over others and why they picked certain stores to shop at. So that sort of why behind the what that people do um, was more interesting to me than even creating ads. And so I started going in this direction of, of psychology and really trying to learn more about um, how to understand people. So um, out of college, I you know went into market research right away, um, which is the, the career that I've had for the majority of, of my career. Um, I did spend some time in advertising agencies. Um, on the account strategy and planning side, which is, again, sort of bringing the consumer voice to the advertising process, um, but always really with this sort of eye toward understanding um, why people do what they do. As, as people, you know, we're, we're so complex and there are so many factors at play, and I really wanted to, you know, dissect that and understand um, what makes us tick. Awesome. So, yep. 
And that leads us to today, the position I have today, which is at Kantar, as you said. Um, and my role there is really um, very specific and focused in the qualitative research area. So really working with consumers either one-on-one -on -one or in groups um, to understand you know, why they're, they're making decisions around brands and products and retailers, um, et cetera. So I'm doing a lot of hands-on with them um, out in stores shopping, as you know, because we've done some of that work together with Barneys. Um, and then in focus groups in their homes, um, really trying to have these conversations, you know, where people are consuming products um, to help us understand how to better create connections between brands and consumers. That's fantastic. And also sounds like so much fun every day. I think, you know, every day for you must be a, a new journey. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's true. And, um, you know, people are people are interesting. We all have stories and our stories are constantly changing and evolving depending upon what's, you know, facing us that day. Um, so you're right. It's always a, a new thing and always really fascinating to discover, you know, what makes people do what they do. Um, it's It's great. I love my job. So when we talk about consumer behavior psychology, uh, which which you touched on and you told us, you know, it, it's why people buy what they buy or why they do what they do. Um, and I do want there to be that I know that people are like, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's important. But don't people buy things because they need things? Um, but is it really that simple? So why why would consumer behavior psychology be so important to retailers, especially today? Mm. Um, well, I think there's there's a couple of things going on, and you can kind of think about this in the context of yourself as a consumer, right? Because we all we all buy things, and we all have preferences to certain brands. Um, how many of those decisions that you make, you know, on a, on a weekly basis about things to buy or things to use, are really rational? That is, you know, how much do you actually consider um, the the rational, realistic, functional reasons for choosing something versus I just really like the way that makes me look or I just really like, you know, the feel of me in this car. Um, so a lot of the decisions that we make, in fact, the majority of decisions that we make as consumers are not at all rational, but they're highly emotional. And so really understanding what people won't tell us because if you ask me why I bought that car, I'm going to tell you I got a great deal on it. The gas mileage is phenomenal. Um, you know, the the tires are the safest for my family. But in reality, I really just liked that car because I look super cool in it, and it's a much better car than my other car, right? So think about it sort of in the context of why you make decisions, and you'll start to see that um, you wouldn't necessarily tell me the real reasons. Um, for making some of your decisions. So I've got to tease it out of you and I've got to really understand using psychology some of the real connections that you have toward brands and why. Well, this is fascinating because that means, you know, that that means that this is really uh, kind of the core of what retailing and service design is about. So in, in that case, I want to ask you, considering consumer behavior psychology, then what does effective and meaningful retailing and service design look like um, today? And, and when you think about today, how has it changed in the last five years? Yeah, um, I think that, that retailers have had incredible challenges 
as you know, in the last five years. And, and we see that by the number of, of stores that just, you know, simply have failed, have gone out of business um, for various reasons. So I think, you know, one of the, the biggest reasons that we can all point to is um, the rise of, of digital commerce and, and online shopping and, and online um, brand exposure, right? That's just been a whole new way for consumers to interact with retail that has really shaken marketplace. And I think as a result, what's happened with consumers is they have really um, uh, increased their expectations of uh, retailing and service design, right? So that um, going into a bricks and mortar store now, we have much higher expectations than we did 5, 10, 20 years ago, um, because we're used to having everything at our fingertips online. We're used to being able to sort through things very efficiently. We're used to being able to shop on our own in, in, a, um, in a, an environment that we control versus other people control when we're online. We're in charge of our own experience. And so um, the expectations that online commerce has sort of created with consumers um, are very hard to meet in a bricks and mortar environment. Um, and I think that's why we see a, a big disconnect between between you know how people feel when they shop online versus shopping in stores, um, and and we've seen you know convenience things like people don't want to go to the mall anymore. You know they don't want to take the the trouble of driving and, and parking and dealing with traffic and dealing with all kinds of crowds and people um, just to go in and, and get a need met um, that they can meet online in a much more convenient, easy, more efficient, um, and sometimes more enjoyable way. Um, so we've had this real sort of tension between online shopping and retailing and bricks and mortar. Um, and even for retailers, you know, traditional bricks and mortar retailers like Macy's, whose online business is a, a small part of their business overall, they've really tried to create these engaging retail spaces and draw people back into the malls and into the big bricks and mortar stores. Um, but we've seen they haven't been able to do that really well. And and certainly that wasn't a strategy to recession proofing as we're seeing now with all of the layoffs that, that Macy's has just announced. So, I, you know, I guess. I'd sum it up from a consumer standpoint um, by saying we've already started to see this avoidance of the mall for the last few years. We've seen people starting to discover brands, you know, online through social media. We've seen the rise of these brands that are only online, um, Bombas, Everlane, MM Lafleur. I could go on. The list is endless. Um, and then, you know, we've, we've also seen sort of this cultural shift around, um, particularly with millennials and, and um, younger generations, wanting to, to watch their money get great deals. So we've seen the rise of discount retailers and some energy around used uh, resale clothing stores. So um, there's really been a lot of, of forces in the marketplace um, that have kind of led us to where we are now, um, which I'm, I'm sure is the next topic that you're going to want to talk about. How do we how do we move forward with the light of the pandemic we're now in? It is exactly what I want to talk about next, because I think, you know, you've touched on quite a few things. And I, you know, for me, brick and mortar is, is I, I love it. I think, you know, just from my standpoint, I've, I have always looked at online businesses as a way and should be a way to drive people to your store and that the online presence should really be the transactional. I need something really quick and 
that's how that goes. And But that people should be able to engage with your brand and understand the experience via touch, via sound. Um, so I, I, I've always had an affinity to brick and mortar. And I, I think there's that place for it because you have these online retailers, as you mentioned, like a Bonobos and Everlane, that said, okay, well, we need to open a brick and mortar location, which I find so interesting. So here we are now in a global crisis where we're going... We're socially distanced right now. It is impacting the retail industry from supply chain on every level. And we go, okay, how does this impact how a consumer will engage with a retailer now? And, and I want your thoughts on that. I, I mean, I have mine, but I'll, I'll save mine for, <laughs> for a bit. But what do you think that this new global crisis will do now, especially to brick and mortar retail? Yeah. And it's such a great question. And, and this is happening in real time around us right now. So, you know, presumably anything we say today may well change in the next weeks and months. But um, but I will say this. Let's look at it in two parts. Let's look at it as during the quarantine. How is our behavior changing? Right. So we're we're forced to stay in now. Um, and I think what that's doing is creating a lot more connection between online retailers and people. Mm -hmm. because they sort of have us as a captive audience, right? I was talking to one of my coworkers yesterday about this topic, and um, she is not a shopper in, in real life, you know, in non-quarantine time. She doesn't like to shop. Um, and I, I said, well, how are you, how are you shopping now? How, you, you still need stuff. Um, and she said, you know, online is providing a nice little break for me because I'm at my computer 10 hours a day now working from home for the first time. Um, and now I'm, I'm finding some time where I can, you know, stop and, and check out some of these, you know, um, retailers online that I may not have seen before. Um, so it is sort of providing a break, but also an opportunity, I think, for consumers to discover um, more brands than they have in the past. Um, I also think some of the really smart retailers are, um, and this is true of brands across the board, no matter what category they're in, they're crafting messages to meet people where they're at, right? So we've had this, this question a lot from um, advertisers in different categories, banking and appliances, and, you know, is now an okay time to advertise or does it feel insensitive if I'm advertising during a, a global pandemic? Um, and what we've said is, the brands that continue to keep connections with consumers are going to be remembered after the crisis, right? So you yeah. have to keep talking to your, your consumers, um, but you talk to them in a way that's relevant and appropriate for where they're at now. So my friend, again, from yesterday, was telling me that she's been getting um, emails from uh, companies talking about their their loungewear, right? Their like yoga pants and like when you're sitting around the house, the comfy, cozy clothing that you want to wear. Um, and it's speaking to her because it's relevant, right? It, it reflects right. the lifestyle that we have now. Um, and it's speaking on an emotional level um, to the comfort that everybody's looking for, that comfort, that reassurance. Um, and so brands that are kind of maintaining connections with their customers and consumers, but but in a relevant way, um, are the ones that I think are going to be remembered after this crisis. And then moving forward, the second part of this is what happens after the quarantine, right? When we can go back out. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing for your students to be thinking about. Um, because what we've seen is, 
when what we've heard from consumers already is this was a, a giant wake up call in a lot of ways, right? And so the behaviors that we're now um, showing at home were, were our adaptive behaviors, I think are gonna continue even after we're allowed to go back out again. So, you know, I think it's true, we're gonna see a bounce back in, in some way and, and who knows what that will look like, whether it will be a sharp bounce back or a more gradual, there will be a bounce back and people will wanna go out and will be eager to be social again. I think restaurants will, will bounce back in a really big way. Um, but I, I wonder about apparel and accessories retailing because I think that people have discovered that they can live with less, right? So financially, especially if we are in a recession, which it looks like we will be. Um, I think people are really going to be watching their dollars and questioning each purchase they make for non-essential goods. Um, and then the other thing that, that I'm hearing consumers talk a lot about is this renewed sort of awareness of germs and, and illness, right? That we really didn't have pre-COVID when, when you think about it. I, you know, we, I think there, there have always been people who have been a little more, you know, in tune to, to germs and germiness. Um, but for the majority of us shoppers, you never really thought about going out to a store and being with crowds of people and trying on clothing that 100 other people had their head in before you. Um, but I think we're going to be thinking about those things more after the fact. And I, I think for that reason, we're probably going to see um, a little different relationship with retail after the crisis um, than we did before. Yeah, I think to your that last point is what I find so interesting because, you know, we spent a lot of time in retail trying to create spaces where people could be together in a sociable way while also shopping. And so you, you saw a lot of stores really kind of product was secondary and experience was first, whether it was what does the coffee shop look like inside of it? Or um, how do they just engage with, with other things that it wasn't about product first? So how does now this concern about my health in a public space change the design of a, a store? Because now do we all go out and we're like, yeah, I wanna be close to people again and talk to them. Or are we gonna walk out of our houses and be like, still stay six feet away? I know. I know. Well, it's funny now the grocery stores, which is the only place, you know, that I'm going, but all of them now have these signs as you're walking in and grabbing your wipe that tell you to stay six feet away. Or, you know, some of the smaller stores will say only 10 people allowed in at a time. And so I think that those things are really going to stick with us even after after the fact. Um, and I'm wondering, and I know you're a big fan of, of mono brands and, and boutiques, as am I. I'm wondering if this is going to bring back the smaller retail store experience, so whether it's a, a boutique, you know, by, you know, Gucci or, you know, another luxury brand, or if it's a mom and pop, you know, that's in, in my local, you know, manufactured Main Street, I call it, you know, these little, you know, housing complexes that have a Main Street running through it with a coffee shop and some stores, which are huge, you know, near where I live, near Philadelphia. Um, I'm wondering if we're going to see more of those small sort of retailers come back after this. I, I honestly think we will. And and one of the things I've always enjoyed about, and you, you peg me right, because you know me, I do love a boutique store. I, I do love mono brand. Um, I think people will, now that you've been forced to slow down, 
it's going to feel weird to try to go back to being really sped up. And I think anytime you you grow as a person or a business, there's always some sort of uh, drastic environmental impact. And what I mean by environmental impact is to, to something directly happening in your own environment, environmental impact that forces you to change. And I don't see us changing in this way where we're like, okay, I kind of enjoy this ability to slow down to then turn right around and go back to that fast pace and being, you know, overwhelmed. And I think the idea of, of going into a boutique setting where things are slowed down, where things are curated with such consciousness, not saying multi-vendors aren't, but I do think that you see it better in a mono brand atmosphere where you see the DNA of a brand, you see how everything is so thoughtfully uh, presented for you. And I think the consumers are going to want that again. I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I do too. And, you know, just thinking about the effects of a potential recession, we're all going to be watching our money, but that doesn't mean we're not going to be spending. That means that we're going to be spending smartly, right? So when I think about the experience I get in a boutique, and I think this is another, you know, sort of impact that the coronavirus has made on us, we all care about our neighbors and our communities a lot more than we did before, or at least we th- were thinking about them more than we did before. Um, so going into you know a small boutique at, at my local Main Street, um, I may pay more, but I'm going to have a deeper relationship, you know, with with the people who work there. I'm going to to see the connection between my purchase and their livelihood. Right. I think we're all really, really focused on supporting local um, you know, businesses right now, especially. I think that's going to continue. Um, so if that means that in the future, I'm going to pay a little bit more um, to get a higher value in the sense that I feel more connected to the community. I feel, um, you know, more connected to the mission of the brand and of the store, as, as you said. Um, I think that those are all going to be things that consumers are willing to pay a little bit more for. So I don't think it's solely going to be about cost savings. I think it's going to be about the value that people perceive they're getting from retailers. Agreed. Agreed. What are you, what are you witnessing now um, as conversations though, that are, that are happening with brands as you're talking to them? I know you, you speak to the consumers a lot, but when a brand is talking to you right now in this whirlwind, what are they saying? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, everybody's really concerned that they that they speak sensitively. Um, and what I mean by that is nobody wants to, to come across as insensitive or promotional or, you know, just looking to make a buck. While at the same time, brands acknowledge that their livelihood is on the line, right? So mm-hmm. they're scared, just like we are as consumers. You know, I'm scared that you know my paycheck may not be the same in three months, and they're scared that you know they're they're not going to do enough sales to keep the doors open. So everyone is really sort of in the same boat, so to speak. Um, and I think what what I've seen um, being done very successfully here in my own community is. The restaurants that are are still open, um, talking really bluntly to consumers, you know, like, hey, guys, we're here for you. You know, we want to be able to help you, um, but we want to keep our lights on and our employees, you know, fed as well. Um, So let's kind of co-create this together, right? So they're having a lot of, of conversations with people in the local community about how they can best serve their needs. 
Um, and what I would love to see is that brought up to the national brand level, right, to bigger brands, where mm -hmm. bigger brands then, who, yes, traditionally always do research with their customers, that's why people like me have jobs, um, but I'd like to see that dialogue be a little more you know, authentic, genuine, a little more um, equal in the sense that, you know, the, I want to hear the brand say, this is the problem and the challenge that I have. How can you as consumers help me? And then what are your challenges and problems and how can I help you? Right. I'd like to see that dialogue be a little more um, honest and transparent between brands and, and consumers. And I think brands want that, too, because, as I said before, a brands brands are made up of people right like us and so i think we're all in this together and and kind of you know feeling our our way through it um together at the same time so that's sort of what i'm what i'm seeing is i want to do the right thing by my my customers and you know for my shareholders i'm not sure what that is so i'm just going to kind of crowdsource it you know put the questions out um and see if we can get through this together I actually have to say, I I love that that is the thought process right now because I think it's now an authentic thought process and hopefully it will continue um, forward because, you know, if we think back over the last, you know, five, six years, there have been a lot of brands that have done some just like crazy things, you know, from, you know, H&M's ad with the the little boy in the monkey shirt and, and just that disconnected in authenticity because no one was asking the question. And what I'm hoping is, is that when they're in this position of going, how do we really connect with people in a meaningful way that really isn't about driving sales, but about driving compassion um, and understanding this will help that that whole dialogue that we have going around of what does inclusivity look like from a brand perspective to a consumer and how are we conscious because to your point a brand is made up of people so I'm, I'm hoping that that's where we can kind of come on the other side of this, which brings me to going, you, you're doing a, all different types of research. There's obviously quantitative and, and qualitative research that exists in, in your field. So how does the brand properly leverage that research and data that you're providing to them? Because sometimes I think a brand can't figure out their way because there might be so much data that comes in, right? Like how do they find their way? So how do you kind of help them through that? How should they be using it? What, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, it's a great question and, and a, a challenge and a problem. You're right. I mean, when you're a big brand, I, I think the, the bigger you are as a brand, sometimes the or, or the higher up you are as a person in a brand, maybe I should say it that way, the farther away you are from your, your customers. Um, and you know, something that that I always urge clients to do, and you and I have done this together in the past at Barney's, um, is for for the associates um, as well as the the senior management to be walking the floor, right? To be talking to customers, to be sitting in the cafe and and chatting with people, and really, you know, sort of living the the um, the daily experience of customers to the extent that that's possible. I think that's really super important. So um, what I'd like to, to work with the brands that, that I um, am, am consulting with now on 
moving forward in the future is really having that experience from a, a consumer point of view um, and not just reading charts and data, but getting out there. You know, Undercover Boss, I think, is one of the best things that <laughs> I've ever seen on TV um, because it's so amazing to me that these CEOs have these epiphanies that like as a normal consumer, you look, you watch the show and you go, of course, that's the customer experience. Of course, we know that. Um, but these CEOs, sometimes it's the first time they're seeing that. Um, and so I think that it's really important that more senior leaders and executives in companies have that experience that their customers have um, and can really live that that for themselves. Um, you can look at data and spreadsheets all day long, but I don't think it really hits home um, until you've lived it yourself. I once had a, a um, my, my boss, and she is like a mentor to me, um, and now she works in the Middle East, but she once said to me, she's like, I can look at the numbers all day and the black and white. She was like, but what you do really well is you provide the color. And it's really important that when you're looking at data, that you can also provide the color to that data. Because, you know, when you and I were doing work together, it was very rare. I don't even think there was a time really that you presented me with information that I was like so extremely shocked and blown away by simply because I was in the stores across our network so often that I would say, yeah, that seems like that probably makes sense for, for Chicago, which means that I was using your data to reinforce my intuition. And, and that's how I think data should work best sometimes, where it's like, you should be so ingrained in the culture of your company or what's happening in the retail brand that that data should be reinforcing what your intuition is saying. It shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, this is brand new to me. <laughs> like, where did this come from? And I yep. think that happens a lot. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, we call it voice of the customer, right? Because it's the, the way a customer might describe the same problem you would describe are two different things, right? <laughs> you might say the associate's you know, response time on the floor is a lot lower than you know the standard you know protocol where a, a customer will say i went in and nobody cared that i was there right or um i i was there walking around and people were judging me and didn't come over and help me those are really real raw experiences that i think can really bring it home um, to senior people in the organization and when you see whether it's a videotape or you see these people in a focus group or, um, you, you know, you experience them in, in real life in person because you have a customer panel, um, you can really, I think, um, understand the consumer experience much better about it in a, in a graph or a chart. You said something to me once that it, it, I think it always sticks with me. I, I think about it all the time when I'm writing any type of training materials now when I'm writing a lecture, whatever it is I'm doing, I think about it. And you said to me, you're like, uh, a customer's experience is either positive or negative. There is no in between. Mm. And I'll let you kind of expound on that because I probably just ruined what you said. But um, what is the one thing, considering that statement that, that you, you made to me and imparted upon me, what then is the one thing a brand cannot afford not to do. I love that you brought that up, Chris, that um, high quality connections is the academic sort of 
study or theory um, behind that. Um, and I, and what it said, you, you got it exactly right, is um, in interactions between two people, or in this case, between a person and a brand, there's no such thing as a neutral experience. So when I'm talking to you, when I'm shopping at a store, I'm either going to skew toward a positive experience or I'm going to skew toward a negative experience. I'm never going to just have an experience where I come out and go, that was okay, right? I'm, I'm always going to be either a little bit excited and inspired or hopefully a lot if we've done our job right as retailers um, or really disappointed and bummed out and, you know, mad at the brand um, if we haven't done our job. So um, I think that all brands really need to keep that in mind. And as you're crafting experiences um, for consumers, for people, um, you know, go the extra mile and um, design experiences that are going to push them up the ladder on that positive side of the scales, but these positive experiences that we have. And they can be very minute. They can be micro moments. They don't have to be these big grandiose things, you know, that that brands do for consumers. They can be these, you know, little things that surprise and delight, these little Easter eggs in the experience. Um, but how can we design and plan more of those into the experience so that on balance, it skews to the positive and we've got these, you know, high quality, life affirming, inspiring connections with people when they think about your brand um, versus the other side, which is where you start to lose customers and they start to say negative things about you to their friends. Um, so really staying on the, the positive side of the scale um, with purposeful service and experience design um, is, is the key. And I think that's probably the answer to your question. What brands can't, um, what, what, what brands, you know, can't afford not to do um, is listen to their consumers and listen to the type of experiences that people want. And so we're saying, continue talking to people right now. This is a great time to do customer research because you've got millions of people at home with their computer and nowhere to go. And <laughs> who needs social connection. We're craving social connection right now. Um, so we are doing, you know, online focus groups. I'm doing interviews. I'm talking to people by phone, you know, smoke signal, however I need to, to talk to consumers to understand the consumer needs and desires and wants and bring that to brands so that they can craft these high quality experiences, um, you know, now and going forward into the future. I think that's that's really, really key for brands is to understand where your consumers are at um, and how you can deepen your connections with them. That's fantastic, really. I I, I, I just love whenever we have that com this conversation in that way. And I, I, you know, just from a personal perspective and, and thinking about relationships, being in that mindset of every person I, I engage with it's it, when they walk away from me, it's not going to be a neutral experience in their mind. Um, and when I'm engaging with anyone, it's not a neutral experience. I think, you know, it's just such great advice and it's, it's so powerful and, and something we, we really need to consider as a whole, as, as a society, I think. Um, I want to switch gears and, and ask you about your, your own personal project. You wrote a book and it's a best-selling book. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It's four stars on Amazon. Five. So I want you to talk a bit about that. If you could you tell our listeners, you know, what what was your 
uh, desire to do the book? Like, why did you have that desire? And what is what is the book about? Yeah, thank you. Um, definitely a passion project in the labor of love um, for uh, myself and my co-author, Faith James, who is a friend, a colleague, a bestie for, you know, going on 20 years now. Um, I met her when we were both working in advertising in Minneapolis. And it's just one of those things like you and I, we just kind of became fast friends very quickly and have, you know, continued on. Um, and we, we decided um, we decided last year. Well, this has really been ruminating for a few years, I, I would say. Um, but we uh, we both come from advertising agencies and um, research backgrounds, and so we we know a lot about brand building, about you know how to build a brand sort of from the ground up systematically. And we've helped you know small businesses, we've helped large brands um, in our capacity. We've done things at various times, you know, since we've known each other. We've done, given workshops for small business owners. We um, have given workshops for strategic planners. So um, we've we've amassed sort of a, a lot of knowledge about brand building, and um, we're both women obviously, and uh, we believe really deeply that we need um, equal representation in business and in government. Um, and what I mean by that is we want men and women to be running the country, running the world, running corporations um, side by side, so 50-50. No more of this, you know, two token females on a board of directors of 18, you know, old guys. We are really feel passionate about that, and we said, you know, a couple of years ago, we said, you know, we have all this knowledge about building big brands and we're helping these companies become really successful. What about our people? You know, what about women? Um, how can we translate the knowledge that we have about building brands um, from companies to women? And so we created this this program, this sort of systematic approach um, to take what we knew from brand building with big, big, small and big companies um, and tailor it for women. So in the book, we kind of we take it's a bit of a workbook of sorts um, in that if you follow the chapter sort of one through 12 at the end of the book, you'll have, you know, created a, a foundation for your brand. And um, we take women through exercises like um, you know, wh what are your VPs? What are the things that you um, envision for the world and are passionate about? Um, and we have a series of exercises that takes them through that. Um, we talk about dressing and the importance of your, your physical appearance and how that has to mirror, you know, who you are inside the authentic, you know, part of you um, in order to really connect with people and really show what makes you different and unique. Um, so it sort of goes through this whole process. Um, and the the title of the book is actually has kind of a long title. And it's, it's funny, this is sort of Faith's brainchild, because I actually can't pronounce one of the words in it very well. Um, but I'll tell you what it is. It's the full title is ladies power up your brand. The women entrepreneurs, that's the word I always get stuck with guide. <laughs> To, I can't say that, to getting paid to be bold, brilliant, and unapologetically you. So it's really about what makes you authentic as a woman, as an individual, and how you can take that and make money from it, right? So um, our hope is that this is for women who are, you know, wanting to start their own business, but they realize that they, they themselves are the brand and they need to um, get clear on their brand priorities 
um, and what their brand stands for before they hang their shingle and go out into into the world with their brand. It's for women who are leaving corporate America and saying, you know, this is not the environment that's that's crafted for me. You know, this is a. Um, you know, an environment that was designed for men by men. Um, in some cases, not every company is like this, but some women have, have told us that. Um, and so they want to go out and create their own, you know, maybe women-led or, you know, a company with, with values that are more in line with theirs. Um, we also love that some political candidates are using the book to, um, to figure out their candidacy and what makes them unique and how they sell themselves as a brand to their constituents. Um, to, you know, hopefully win more political races um, this year and, and in the future. So um, that's, you know, that's what the book is all about. And that was the impetus. And that's really sort of the passion behind it for Faith and I is, is you know, men and women sharing e equally in the leadership of, of our country and in our brands and our world. I, I have to tell you, I am, I am genuinely so proud of you for doing that project because, you know, writing a book is, is definitely not easy. Um, cause first of all, the hardest part is kind of like, how do you start with your ideas and, and then really going through the process, but you, you wrote a book in a way that it is going to benefit, um, society and, and benefit a lot, a lot of, um, different generations um, because I think a lot of times when, when people think of a book like that, it is only geared towards a, a certain generational group of people. But, you know, now the average age of the CEO in, in our company is in our country is 35 years old. So this book definitely speaks to a younger group, but it, it also speaks to, uh, you know, that, 50 year old or, or even 60 year old who's like, I want to change up my life and do something different. How do I do that with a brand? And, and kudos to you, kudos to Faith for investing your time in, in creating this guide for all of us. Mm, thank um, you. How can our listeners stay informed about what you are going to be doing in the industry next um, if they wanted to reach out? So thank you for that. I, I love having conversations with people um, anywhere, anytime. So um, I have a pretty unique last name. I'm pretty easy to find online. So <laughs> Stacy Graco, G-R-A-I-K-O is my, you know, it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can find me in any one of those LinkedIn, find me in any one of those places. Um, and I'm always happy to, you know, return calls and emails. Um, never a problem and always welcomed. The other thing that I will say is if you want to hear more about the book, it's on Amazon, of course, um, but uh, we have a website called the Personal Branding Consultancy, um, which is under my name and Faith James, my um, writing partner. So you can find more information about branding and personal branding for women in particular there. And then I, I do think that Kantar um, is doing some really interesting cutting edge things in response to what's happening with retail um, during the COVID era. Um, so Kantar.com, K-A-N-T-A-R.com, um, has a number of good white papers and articles. Um, we're doing a weekly check-in with consumers around the world um, to understand the impact of the global pandemic and how it's affecting retail across categories. So it's, it's grocery, it's apparel, it's you know services. Um, so there's a really nice, white paper, series of white papers and PowerPoints um, that you can get from the Kantar.com website for free. So I would also encourage your listeners to, to check that out and use that as a resource as well. Fantastic. 
Stacy, thank you so much for your time today. I've enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure our listeners enjoyed this conversation. Um, we hope to have you back in person when we all can see each other face to face in the near future. So thank you so much. And thank you, Retail Revolutionaries, for listening today. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retail Revolution. A very special thank you to everyone who has helped make this podcast possible. Our guests, our students, and fellow faculty at Parsons School of Design, especially in such an extraordinary and unprecedented time. Our theme music was composed by Spencer Powell. Be well and stay tuned for our next episode.